0: This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Ryan's Thompson Fund, Physicians for Social Responsibility, and listeners like you.
1: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space Radio. Today is the last show in our series on parenting kids on the autism spectrum. And as we've done with our last few series, we're closing with a collection of stories. Today we're bringing you six stories from parents around the Northeast about what it's been like for them to raise a child on the spectrum. As you may know, the Center for Disease Control just reported that the incidence of autism has gone up dramatically. One in 68 kids in this country is diagnosed with a form of autism, up from one in 150 just 12 years ago. The reasons for this increase are not yet understood and are a source of major controversy, but this much is clear. As autism becomes more common, all of us will know someone who's affected. And we can expect to interact with people with autism even more as these kids grow up. Autism is something that will ultimately impact all of us. It can be incredibly challenging to cope with some of the behaviors that come along with autism. But on top of that, it can be even more difficult to deal with other people's judgment about those behaviors. The first two stories give you a sense of what challenging behavior can look like and the dramatically different ways that people respond
0: to it.
2: My name is Frank, and I am from Harvard, Mass., and I would like to tell a story today about my son, who is on the spectrum, last year was my 50th birthday so I wanted to do something special and what I really wanted to do was have a normal family vacation because we had not had anything remotely like that since um, my son was born we didn't know what in the world was going on with him and last year he would have been five and so instead of a big old party with a bunch of my friends I just wanted a family vacation just like everybody else has and so we ended up going on a cruise Um, And it was one of these all-inclusive family cruises to the Bahamas. So there was a couple moments, honestly, on the cruise where I just, it was kind of some of the worst moments um, I've experienced there was a kids club and we had to sign the kids up and they said to us while we were filling out the paperwork, oh, we work with special needs kids. What does your son need? I was like so excited about this. I thought this is fantastic. See, I did make the right decision. And they asked all these questions. They gave us a beeper and they said, let's try them out in the kids club. And this was probably the second or third day of the cruise, and he lasted almost 40 minutes. And we got a call and a beeper saying, would you please come here? Your son's destroying our playroom. I was like, oh, my goodness, what? And he just, you know, we got there, and he's ripping down things from the walls. He's throwing things at kids. He was so dysregulated. Um, and, you know, my heart went out for him. In connection with my being totally mortified, like, what in the world is going on? He can't even last 40 minutes in a kids' club with a bunch of other kids. But as soon as he saw me, he kind of ran up to me and hugged me and said, I'm never going back there again. I'm never going back there again. And I certainly didn't know what in the world was going on. But of course, you know, I hugged him back, um, gave the people back their beeper, and that was it. He had to be with us constantly the whole time. The second piece of that was, um, we were in the elevator and this is a big brand new ship, you know, and it's 12 stories. We were, I think our room was on the 10th floor. We got into the elevator one day and the whole elevator was encased in glass and we're climbing on this elevator with a bunch of people. And my son just starts banging the mirrors, you know, just totally out of control, um, And, you know, it's like, oh, my God, four, five, six. As I watched those numbers go up, getting us to 10, I was like, please get me out of here as soon as possible. And this woman looks at me, um, and it was just so awful. She said, you know, he comes from your genes. And I just stopped and looked at her. Like, what do you mean? Like, she was totally blaming me for his behavior, in a way that felt just horrible. And I wanted to say something to her, you know. um, Honestly, my son's adopted, and I wanted to say, no, he's not, he's adopted. But of course I didn't say that. Um, But it was just mortifying for me. It was just like, you have no idea what's going on here. But it was kind of that, okay, we don't belong in the world. See, we're not like everybody else, and people are judging us for this. And that was kind of you know, get us through the rest of this cruise and get me off the ship and I will never be on another vacation with everybody else. Um, As long as I live is kind of what it felt like. It was really, it was humbling and humiliating. Those moments really stick out for me and really let me know that we are not like normal families. And that is very clear. Now that I see my job more clearly as a parent is to really protect him in those moments instead of trying to get him to behave like everybody else. It's more like the world has to learn how to be with kids on the spectrum versus you have to get kids on the spectrum to learn how to behave in the world.
3: This is Allison, and I'm from Newton, Massachusetts. This is a story about my son Gabriel. My son is six years old, and he's just finishing up kindergarten. And this story takes place a couple of months ago. Throughout the course of Gabe's childhood, he's often had behavior patterns that come up, and I don't always understand where the behavior is coming from. Uh, Gabriel is verbal. He's very verbal. But uh, he doesn't always have the correct language to express how he's feeling or how what he wants or what he needs. And sometimes he acts things out through behavior, and we have to try and figure out what he's trying to tell us. So one day we were sitting in the living room, and I looked up just in time to see he was holding a tissue box, and he threw it at me. And I was so surprised. I didn't, (laughs) the tissue box came flying across the room. And I looked at him and I said, Gabe, why did you throw that? And he says, I wanted to see what would happen. And that was it. That was all I could get out of him. And the next day, again, we're in the living room. He had a cup of milk, had a lid on it. And he took the milk and just whipped it across the room at me. The cup hit me, the lid came off, the milk was everywhere, and I'm standing there covered with milk and I said to him, Gabe, why did you throw that milk at me? And he says, I don't know. I just wanted to see what would happen, and I could not get one more word out of him about why he threw the milk. So while this was happening, I I was confused, I was angry, I was worried, what if he threw something worse, and he actually hurt someone? At the same time, I started getting notes home from school. He was throwing things at school. He threw a crayon, he threw an eraser, and one day I got a message home from school that he was holding a yardstick, and he was poised to throw it, and the teacher intercepted him. So I panicked, I emailed his whole team, his classroom teacher, the inclusion facilitator, his classroom aide, and I said, I, I really need to talk about this. They said, we'll set up a meeting as soon as possible. And a couple of days later, we were all sitting in a room together. And I said, thank you so much for meeting with us. This behavior is so challenging, it's so worrisome to us. And they were so calm. They just saw a challenging behavior, and they knew that they had the skills to figure it out, and their calm made me calm, and so we brainstormed, and they said, the only thing he's telling us is, I just wanted to see what would happen. Well, maybe he's just curious. Maybe he's curious about what happens when he throws things. Maybe he thinks that instead of flying across the room, that The cup of milk will float up to the ceiling. And then they started coming up with solutions. What if we set up a science center where he can drop things or roll things and see what would happen that way? And that's exactly what they did. They set up a science center. They brought in marbles. And the thing that happened next was really nothing short of miraculous, in my opinion. The throwing stopped. He experimented with the things for about another week. And then after that, it was like his curiosity was satisfied. Before I met with the teachers, all I was thinking about was how awful this was and and what are we going to do about it. But then I started thinking, he's asking really good questions. He's asking science questions. And I started to see this challenging behavior as an expression of this wonderful curiosity that I really hope that I can harness in some way and I can nurture in some way.
1: Finding meaning in a child's behavior when the ability to communicate is really limited is a common theme in dealing with kids on the spectrum. It's also a universal experience of parenting any child who's not yet fully verbal or self-aware. I was so inspired by those calm teachers who understood that throwing things was curiosity, not violence. They really got that his behavior had meaning and no one was to blame, not the kid and not the mother. This next story is about the drive and the hope that keep a parent going when there's no guarantee that all the therapists, services, and educational approaches are really going to make a difference.
4: Hi, my name is Molly, and I live in South Portland. And the story I want to share is something that happened last fall. Um, I teach college. Um, I have a couple night classes. And last fall, I'm halfway through a lecture, and my cell phone tells me I have a text, which I don't usually ever take in the middle of class. But on the fluke, I looked at it, and um, when I read it, I just started to weep. I was stunned. And I'm standing in front of the class with a cell phone in my hand, and my students, it was a very full class, are all sitting there looking at me and surprised and very curious, and some are distressed, And I thought, from a human being to a human being perspective, it's a wonderful thing to let someone see parts of your life. So I sat down and I told them my story. I have two sons. They're 17 and 18. And when my 18-year-old turned two, he was diagnosed with autism spectrum. When my 17-year-old turned two, he was diagnosed with autism spectrum as well. And when we got the diagnosis, I began to focus purely on um, what did I do wrong? What could I perhaps do differently? Um, What did my children need from me? We went to see a pediatric neurologist um, in New Hampshire, and she was fabulous. And she said get him into therapy, do whatever you have to do, fight whatever battle you have to fight, but get him into therapy. And so we did, we drove home and I got on the phone and I started the first of many, many phone calls advocating for him. And her goal at that time was mainstream kindergarten, get him into a public school kindergarten. And I remember moments of wondering, is he ever going to be able to function in society? What if he never learns how to talk? And at two years old, it's so young and so many things hadn't been developed, I didn't know what would happen. So we started therapy, and we were in therapy every morning and every afternoon. Um, for a total of four years between the two children, um we single handedly kept McDonald's in business because we lived in the car we lived in the car um and I remember having to wake him up once to go to speech therapy, and it was just such a demoralizing moment because he's two and he's exhausted, and I don't like waking him up to go back to work. It too is a little young. But we got him into a kindergarten. He had a one-on-one aid, so we had an adult um, dedicated to him only. As he grew, we had periods that were really touch-and-go. We had to pull him out of public school more than once um, because he was just not functioning. And I remember one time specifically, he had moved from kindergarten to first grade, and uh, I don't know what happened, I don't know if it was just a bad mix, but I remember going in the room and he's lying on the floor with his thumb in his mouth, just completely disengaged, sucking his thumb, he's now seven years old, and he just can't function. But he also had splinter skills. He was brilliant at math. We had him tested through John Hopkins University, and he was literally off the chart with his mathematical computations. So at a very tender age of about five or six, I decided on a full scholarship to MIT because I was really going to find a way to maximize whatever strength I could find to maximize. Well, I realized that I'd quite forgotten about the scholarship part because life grew up around me like a thicket, and I was more worried about making a car payment or um, hitting the market on a Friday afternoon, or have we had enough heart-to-heart conversations to keep their emotional well-being alive and thriving. And... um when I was standing teaching class, it was just a regular class halfway through the semester, but the text that came in said that he had been accepted to a very good private four-year college. And that was the marrying for me of what we started out with and what we arrived at. Education is hugely important to me. and receiving that text had said it was worth the time and it was worth the effort and it was worth the one more go around to try to explain a concept they weren't getting. So it was sort of a pat on the back from the universe, so to speak, that we'd really stuck it out and we'd done very well and what a huge relief, you know, that he's sort of ready to look at the world now as an adult.
1: At some point in the life of an autistic child, the question comes up, how do you tell them that they're on the spectrum, and what that's going to mean? The last thing you want to do is make your kid feel like something's wrong with them, but you also need a way to talk about it. Here are two stories about parents' attempts to tell their child what it was that made them different, and how that went.
5: My name is Helen, and I am from Scarborough, and this is a story about my son, who's now 12. A few years ago, when he was in third grade, he started to wonder why he was different. He has a diagnosis of Asperger's, and he also struggles with ADHD and anxiety and depression. Um, so during that third grade year, it was a really tough year for him. He transitioned to a new school, and he was just really thrown off by a lot of things. And signs of depression were really starting to kick in for him. And he was wondering uh, things like why do I go to room 13, which was the specials room where he would get help with social work and speech? And why don't I understand why the kids are joking around at lunchtime? Or why do I always think somebody is teasing me when they're not? I mean, these weren't the exact words he was using, but this was the feeling I was getting from him. And my husband and I were sort of on the fence about whether or not we should tell him about his diagnosis. And I being all about being up front and center and advocating and having people know what's going on with them, I thought it was important we should tell him. So I started to just slowly talk to my son and say things like, well, you know how you are really good at math, but sometimes you have trouble understanding what somebody's saying to you or how to respond to a question And he would say, yeah. And I'd say, well, that's because your brain works differently than other people's brains. And we gave this thing a name, Asperger's. So every night before bed, I would climb into my son's bed with him. He sleeps in um, a bunk bed. And the bottom bunk is like a full size bed. And the top bunk is a twin. We'd be sort of in this little cave, you know, in his bed snuggling. And the lights would be dim. And um, we'd just be chatting. It seemed to be his his way of sort of winding down at night. And we were chatting and uh, we were talking about, you know, how are you feeling about having Asperger's? Do you have any questions about it? And he would say, well, I just, I don't like the name. I said, oh, you mean because it's like a body part and a food? And he says, yeah. And I'd say, well, why don't we think about calling it something else? How about we call it um, Nose Fries? And he just loved that, nose fries. And we just laughed. We just started cracking up about that. So now, whenever we refer to Asperger's, I'm not allowed to call it Asperger's. I have to call it nose fries. And that's the term that stuck. And I think it's pretty good.
6: This is Patty from Massachusetts. And I want to tell you a little bit about Katie. Katie. Uh, When Katie was growing up, she was a little bit developmentally slower than most kids, and, and there were a lot of challenges. Socially, she just didn't seem to get people's emotions, or she'd be in a certain situation, and something would happen, and either I would explain to her that that wasn't the best thing to be doing, or her teacher would, and she would do it again over and over like she had never, ever been told that. And so there, there were so many things. The literalness, I would say to her, "Katie, you're being silly." And man, it was like I told her, she was the worst thing on the planet, and it, she just didn't didn't get that those are things that people just commonly say to each other, and they don't really have like such a strong meaning. But for Katie, in that moment, calling her silly was just not acceptable. Fast forward to when she's thirteen years old. Asperger's was just coming to the forefront as a quote-unquote diagnosis. And I went online, I saw all these characteristics, and I thought, oh, my goodness, uh, she has many of these. So what we did was uh, I sat her down and I said, Katie, you have some amazing qualities. You are outgoing. You meet people and they love you instantly. And uh, your brother, on the other hand, is challenged by that. Uh, he sits in a corner and reads books all the time, and I said, and then you have some things that are challenging to you, like academics in school, and and your brother is like not challenged by that. So we all have our our great points, and we all have our challenging points. And if I were to look at everything about you, Katie, how you're literal. I'm not literal, Mom. Okay, Katie. Um, you're not literal. I said, Katie, so there's a name for this. It's called Asperger's. And it was developed, some man developed the name for it. And it just means that you have certain qualities about you. And I can help you with that. I can be a better parent for you, knowing those qualities. And you can help yourself with that. I said, does that make sense? Yeah, Mom. Do you have any questions? No, Mom, no questions. Four hours later... I said to Katie, hey, Katie, what's up? She had this funny look on her face. She says, mom, I've just been thinking all day since you told me about that. I've been wondering, how did that guy get the burger up his ass?
1: Parenting a child on the spectrum is full of surprises. This last story is about the impact one child can make on a whole system.
0: My name is Jennifer, and I am from Kennebunkport, and I have a 10-year-old son with autism. Uh, I like to say he's verbalish, where he can actually speak, but he um, can't hold down conversations. He is in fourth grade, and he goes to uh, the little neighborhood school in Kennebunkport, and he's um, been in a program there uh, for the last five years for uh, students with special needs called the DLC, or Developmental Learning Center. The DLC is a program where students with special needs like autism, Down syndrome, or other disabilities, they have a classroom, but they're also in a typical classroom as well throughout the day. Each one of them usually has an ed tech that, that follows them around. We found out that the district for... Um, basically money reasons and space reasons, wanted to remove this program from this school. This didn't sit well with my friend and I who have special needs kids at this school. And so we started this little grassroots, you know, hey, let's save this program here at our school. But it all came to a head when um, there was a a big school board meeting um, to, to discuss the budget, and so therefore we'd be talking about placements and things for next year and so you know the people that were trying to save this program sent out some emails and said you know if you can at all try to come to this meeting you know even if you don't want to talk just be there silently supporting and I got this email from a parent that I didn't know well and she said I've been talking about it with my girls who've both either attended school there or still currently attend there and they would like to speak at the meeting on Monday And um, I was like, oh, okay. You know, I was thinking adults, but sure. And so the meeting comes. I walk in the room Monday night. And, of course, my husband and I were speaking. A friend of mine was speaking. We, You know, we had some fairly prepared speeches. And there's this mother with her two girls. And... They both have these little statements in their hands that they're crumpling up waiting and there's like 10 school board members at this big giant table and, you know, it's – I was scared to death so I can't even imagine how they must have felt. But um, so my husband gets up and speaks first and, you know, some other folks get up and and speak and then it's – and then it's them. And the mother walks up with her two daughters, and the older one speaks first. And she's lovely and talks about how she used to go in and read to the kids in this classroom and how she her quote was that she learned more from these kids than in any of her classes. And I loved that. But then it was the other little girl's turn, and she's a, she's a fourth grader, and she had her little winter coat on, and she just looked so tiny up there next to this big giant microphone and all these people. And she starts talking about specifically my son um, and how much he means to her and how if she's having a bad day, she knows she can always look over at him and he'll give her a good smile. And then she proceeds to completely break down at the microphone, and uh, there was really no one that was not breaking down at that point in the audience, uh, including me. And um, it was truly such a moment Um because I had been so afraid back in the days right before my son went to public school, I didn't know how the public school would accept him, and I've I've known it all along. They embraced us from day one. So, but uh, the, this moment was incredibly touching because it wasn't it wasn't much. Many more days after this particular school board meeting, that the um, district said that they would keep the program at our school, at least for now. And it struck me that sometimes the smallest voices are the loudest. And I think in the journey through autism, that's it's been the the norm. You know, people are generally very, very lovely and good and, and want the best for all people. And um, I think growing up, you know, I was sort of always taught to protect myself and um, to be sort of wary of strangers. And um, I think what my son has shown me is that The world is a really good place, and people are really kind and really good. And they do see the best in him, and he brings out the best in people.
1: I love that story because I can't tell which mom would be more proud. The mom of the two girls who dared to speak, or Jen, the boy's mom. To think that her child, who was the recipient of so many services, was actually helping other kids. It seems like the perfect way to end our season on Safe Space Radio. This year, we've been exploring new ways to tell silenced stories. And at the end of each series on dementia, incarceration, LGBTQ teens, and now parenting kids on the autism spectrum, we've asked listeners to record their stories. And we were continually surprised because the stories that people have shared are not always the kind of confessional stories we were expecting, but actually stories of love and unexpected connection. As a psychiatrist, I often assume that untold stories are about suffering or shame, when in fact, sometimes we are also just bursting to share what touches us deeply and gives joy. My thanks to all the parents who shared their stories on today's show and all of our guests for this series. If you have a child on the spectrum or suspect that you might and need access to services, you can contact Child Development Services, which is the state agency that will help with diagnosis. They can be reached at 781-8881. Or the Autism Society of Maine. You can find them online at asmonline.org or call them at 1-800-273-5200. Today is the last show this season. We'll be taking the summer off and returning in September on Labor Day. If you did not get a chance to hear all of today's show, please go to our website at safespaceradio.com. There you can listen to the show, you can write us a comment, and you can listen to all the previous shows, as well as subscribing to get a weekly email with a link to that week's show. You can also download the show from iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show, Jim Russell for being our consultant, and Maurice Lennon for the intro music. Coming up next is Speak Freely.